0: Mickey D. Mike, Mickey D. Mike, Mickey D. Mike, Mike. You are now tuned in to the Mind Wanderers podcast, the podcast where we wander and explore the world around us. I'm your host, Timmy Chatelou, and this is episode 16. 16. thank you very much for joining me this is the one and only mind wanderers podcast i'm your host timmy chatelou and hey how you doing <laughs> i hope you guys are doing very well or at least managing the best you can as we go through the twists and turns of 2020. I just want to start off with a big thank you to all my fellow wanderers who've come back for another episode and also a massive welcome to all my new listeners. Anyone, if this is your first time listening and you're somewhat unsure as to what to expect, this is the Mind Wanderers podcast and basically think of me as a wonder partner, you know, if you were to go on a stroll with someone and just talk about any and everything. The person may talk of it too much or maybe think too deeply about things, but the one thing that you can be assured of is that they will make you think or learn a bit more about the world around you as we explore this world which is a forest of information so this podcast is simply where i take a question or thought or even a random idea that our minds may wander to and i simply explore them as best as i can i'm No expert on any one topic, but I try my best to do the research and share it with you guys or as I like to call it, share it with my fellow mind wanderers. As some of you regular listeners may have noticed, I've been somewhat on a mini hiatus. I haven't released an episode for about a month or so, and the secrets to my disappearance are forever to remain unknown, but I can confirm I was not involved in any entanglements, as the great Jada Pinkett Smith has now (laughs) informed everyone. Um, No, yeah, I was unfortunately fell into somewhat of a writer's block or a podcast block a pod block if you will so that was the true reason for my disappearance and delay in getting this episode to you guys and for that i'm sorry i'm sorry what do you mean to do i'm sorry i'm sorry i apologize If I'd say so myself, I'd definitely recommend some of the earlier episodes. If you're someone that likes learning about different things, different topics, then definitely check out all my previous episodes. Uh, I deal with stuff like simple questions, like why the fuck do we cross our legs, to wider, broader questions, and have on guests uh, for topics such as how do we achieve growth, understanding, and power during a pandemic lockdown. So, in fact, my last episode called Mentally aware, took a real uh, good look into the history of human mental awareness. Uh, You may know and we've all seen that there's been some explosion of sorts in terms of the attention and importance given to human mental welfare in the past decade. And so basically, I took a wonder from the early remnants of our ancestors and how they used to deal with mental welfare all the way up to present day and how we are looking in the future and different therapies that are now springing up with new technologies such as VR headsets to deal with phobia and using Fitbits as biological data. So if you're really into dealing with or thinking about a wide range of things, I'll definitely say check out some of my previous episodes. So the last time I recorded a pod, we were living through some of the largest protests that we've seen in our lifetimes. Well, in my lifetime, some of you older listeners may debate that, but I'm sure we were all aware of the protests. The protests are far from over, and as we resume this new normal, as we call it, less people are being furloughed, some people are coming back into work, and so the numbers in, in terms of the protests are starting to dwindle. But the spirit very, very much lives on, and I'm sure by now you either know or are aware of what triggered this most recent wave of Black Lives Matters protests. The brutal killing of george floyd not only triggered global outrage but sparked the protests and discussions about police brutality against black people and the racial injustices that exist through society but what i wanted to talk about today isn't about the incidents that may spark a protest but what makes someone want to protest is there any psychological or science behind it it sounds like a dumb question to be honest if you think about it if you were to ask anyone why a group of people are protesting the natural response would be because those people are pissed about something and under the rules of democracy they have a right to voice their opinion through peaceful assembly so even if you agree with the substance of their protests from fairly accepted things like animal rights or climate change or even down to dumber things such as issues like not wanting to wear a mask during an unprecedented global pandemic with human to human transmission but hey what the fuck do i know but you get the idea whether or not we agree on the substance of a protest we agree the root cause is a group of people are expressing a level of discomfort or feelings of injustice and probably the most important factor a sense of anger but is that it Not everyone who feels anger to a situation normally takes to the streets and a chance for change. Some people choose to operate in other ways of protest, such as petitions, focus groups, and NGOs. So with this in mind, I then started to think, what really triggers protesting? There's probably a number of reasons people go out to the streets and it's practically impossible to list down every single reason. But at the same time, I think it's too simple or naive to say that It's only because everyone is angry in that crowd So before we start I just wanted you to think about Have you ever gone to a protest And what were your reasons behind going to a protest Was it just because you're angry Did you want to show support for a cause you believe in or was it because you wanted to be part of some small slice of history maybe i'm not going to judge you if that's what you're doing but at the same time i'm just going to try my best this episode to look into that question and wonder about the reasons behind such a powerful tool we use as a people so after this short interlude we're going to get into the question of what makes people protest Chance from a protest, majority of the time, what you will hear is raw emotion and the passion the protesters have. So, earlier when I mentioned anger in the introduction, I did this because research shows emotion to be a leading factor of protest participation. So, like I said before, anger alone is too simple an answer, but I didn't mean to say it doesn't play a very heavy role when it comes to someone participating in a protest. There are countless social issues that can make you emotional to the point you feel you have to voice your frustrations, whether that be online or in the streets. If you're angry about wealth inequality, that could be one reason. If you're fearful that racial injustice might have an impact on you or your family, that could be something. Or if it's amidst your fear and anger at the state of the world when it comes to dealing with things such as impeding nuclear war threats or climate change, for example. But the answer emotions just seems too simple. So I started to wonder how to break down the part emotion plays when it comes to protesting. In order to do this, I had to ask a different question, though. The question I had to ask was what emotions motivate some people to try change society while others are willing to remain with the status quo. From my research, what I've come to discover is that two emotions play a major role in whether someone will participate in a protest or not. The first I mentioned, and that's anger, the second one is fear. The combination of these two emotions can serve two functions. One, they can accelerate an individual to act quicker. And two, they can amplify the motives an individual has for acting. And these are all garnered by the emotions of anger and fear. To be honest, I think this makes quite a bit of sense. Protesters tend to be quite passionate for their cause, and it would make sense that their feelings are involved in that. And that's because as humans, we know how powerful emotions are and they can lead us to do a number of things, wonderful things, incredible things, but also at the same time, things that we might deem out of character, including protesting. But this is key to being human, having these emotions to basically drive us against our will or rationality to a degree at some point. So moving on, you then have the idea of, okay, if people's emotions are that powerful to take them outside, why don't we, we do see the odd random individual who might go out with a placard and stand outside Westminster, but you don't tend to see that quite a lot. It's very few individuals that do that. But then when you see a protest, you also get this idea or concept of shared intensity and social movements are by definition group activities and so it's within these groups that emotions can run high and by building upon each other if one of one person's angry that anger translates to you and if someone has a fear of an existential threat that fear can translate to you or be an influence upon you so what you get is this concept of shared intensity you have these emotions of anger and fear and when someone joins a protest or goes to join a protest what they're feeling is something called shared intensity of these emotions and so that gives them more of an incentive to actually go out to a protest and actually act out and voice out their frustrations. So What then is the case for people who won't necessarily class themselves as angry and won't necessarily class themselves as fearful? Because say, for example, you're someone who is not affected by racial injustice, but at the same time, you're not fearful of it. Studies have shown that people who fall into this category tend to have a strong sense of ethical responsibility. And most of the time their protesting is due to what they see happening in the world, irrespective of anything happening in their inner life. I know I'm not the only one when you look at different protests and when you see certain individuals in the protests and you start to think, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like, how does this affect you? But this just goes to show that individuals have varying senses of moral responsibility and if some people so happen to be someone with a high or strong sense of moral responsibility that can result in them participating in a protest more likely than say someone who doesn't have a strong sense of moral responsibility. So I just like to look at these emotions one last time, uh, anger and fear and what do these emotions represent. They also represent a theme called fight or flight and for those of you who've never heard of that phrase before it essentially describes a situation in which a human is facing let's say a death-like situation and the only options are to either use their anger to fight through the situation or use their fear to take flight and run away from the situation. In the context of protesting, survival triggers come into play when we speak of perceived reality. For example, say someone feels like their life is threatened, using anger to fight back is an option. And that could be in the form of protesting in terms of fighting back against government. On the other hand, when we are fearful and survival mode kicks in again, we can convert our fear into anger as normally an individual might feel helpless or quite vulnerable, then we tend to act out most likely in the form of anger or protest as we call it. But some people then start to think, how do people get so angry or fearful of their situation? And this is a very good question. So this is where I can bring in the news and social media because they play quite a fundamental part in our lives. I always used to think, why does the news always tend to lean to negative information, negative headlines, and just negative things in general? And when you break it down, it's because these headlines and these stories actually tap into our raw emotion. Because traditional news media or even social media tends to sensationalize stuff that might make you agree in outrage or make you quite scared or something. And when we're constantly bombarded with news that gives us experts telling us stuff like, oh, one in three people suffer from this negative thing and it's also this person's fault. This then triggers those sorts of emotions such as anger at the person who's potentially made you part of this group and then also fearful that you might be part of this group that has this said illness. And so, like I said, before what these two emotions can do can accelerate and amplify issues in your head and it creates effectively a cycle that perpetuates itself leading again to you feeling these survival triggers and when you feel these survival triggers you then look to any formal means to actually um, survive in. and if that means you need to protest then what you will do as a human is protest if that is how you're going to survive a situation. I'd also like to say, I'm not pointing out whether protesting is either a good or a bad thing, or even if it makes any logical sense whatsoever, especially when we think of people arguing not to wear masks. I I still don't understand that. But frankly... Whatever you want to protest about, the rationality in it is in the eye of the beholder. I'm just looking into what will drive people to actually going outside and protesting. So the news and social media plays a very big part in that. Social media very nicely leads me into my next point, And this is on the idea of collective identity with the internet and social media you've got Instagram you've got Twitter you've got Reddit you've got whatever it is a lot of these platforms are channels for people to talk and now back in the days when people wanted to protest most of the time they had to share ideas in the same town and if they had any grievances with their government it had to be within their town halls in which they would voice that and now with the age of social media what you don't have is any limit on geographical proximity to people so Even if someone in Birmingham is angry about a particular issue, they could speak to someone in London who has the same grievance in regards to that same issue. And so what this does is it creates a collective identity for everyone in that group and it allows the group to get bigger without the limits of geographical distance. So with social media and protesting and collective identity, the main thing I want you to think about is there's no protest without a group. And if you don't have a group of people willing to go outside with the same intensity, the same passion to go and say that we are not standing for this, whatever it may be, what you get is just individual people going outside. And like I said, that isn't as effective. So what collective identity does is it makes an organisation a group. And once an organisation becomes a group, what you have is more hands on deck. So you have more people able to put, a lot of effort in towards making sure that what that protest movement goes well and making sure that they are part of something that ends up having some action in the real world. Another thing um, when people become a collective identity is efficiency in a group leads to activation. This is sometimes called what we say is a contagion effect. And so it means that when people see other people doing certain actions, they repeat that behavior after it. And it's just, it's, it's like a virus. I, I know it's very ill worded called the contagion effect, but that's what it, that's what it's called. Contagion effect is effectively, if you see someone else in your group going out to protest, you would see that and you would say, okay, I'm gonna go out and protest too. And again, you can't have a protest without people, but you can't gather people unless they share a goal. So what you have with collective identity is a group of people changing from just a random group of various people into we are X and we stand for Y. And yes, like with any group, you have subdivisions. But for argument's sake, let's just say that most of the time when people go out to protest, they have the same shared goal. Now you have a group of people who share the same collective identity going out for the same cause but what does this also offer to any individual? It offers them to become somewhat anonymous within the group. And that is a major part of what can make someone protest. If you were to go out to the street by yourself with a placard outside Westminster, you would most likely, if you start raising up too much of too much trouble, you would probably be identified very quickly and taken to the police station very swiftly. But when you go within such a big group, it offers individuals a sense of anonymity, I think I said that correctly because I know I say words so weirdly sometimes. But yes, it offers people to virtually virtually be invisible to a degree. And if you're invisible, people it's been shown throughout a lot of studies that people tend to take more risks and take action that they maybe wouldn't have if they could be identified. So if you think about it, if you can blend in and share risk in group scenarios, if you have a collective identity, it's easier for you guys to join this protest movement or go ahead and protest but this then leads me to a very interesting point which is the age of AI facial recognition and we saw what happened we've seen what's happening going on in Hong Kong at the moment with the extradition law and when it comes down to I believe it's called the national security law for those of you that don't know um, Hong Kong is currently battling China because Hong Kong is essentially separate from China so um, China have imposed a law on Hong Kong saying that they can and take people to the mainland and prosecute them under Chinese law. And a lot of Hong Kong people don't agree with that because they're meant to be autonomous or effectively self rule. That was the whole agreement that they had with the British colony that had it before. It's all a bit messy. But anyway, now the Hong Kong. Writers have been writing for a very, very long time. I don't know if you guys have seen, but for a very, very long time. And what they started to realize is the Chinese government have started using facial recognition technology using AI. And so this is going to be a big factor when it comes to protests in the future. Because if people don't have that sense of being anonymous within a group and technology such as the Clearview system, which is an AI technology that's able to read like biometric data of someone's face from just images. Even if we were to put AI to the side for one second, just look at your phone and look at social media. When there's protests going on, we all see different pictures. People are taking pictures of themselves as well. And probably this is somewhat of a good thing because it means we don't live under oppressive society that we can't take pictures of going to a protest. But at the same time, we're losing that sense of being anonymous within the crowd because of phones being so readily available and it being so easy to post a picture on the internet and it being there forever for anyone to take up and use against you if needs be. That somewhat reminds me of all these World War II documentaries that I've been watching. There's a really, really good one on Netflix called World War II in Color. I would recommend you guys check it out but just the whole mass surveillance reminds me of the Gestapo and stuff like that so it's really interesting to see what's going to happen with the whole rise of um, facial recognition technology I know that they are using it in China as we speak now, I think even China have this thing called social scores so we're going to see how that turns out but going back to my main point was once a group has collective identity, this makes it easier for someone to say that they're going to go out to a protest so this is also a key factors so what we've got is emotions such as anger and fear and as I said before these play a part in accelerating and amplifying the motives to join a social movement but once you're at the point of joining a social movement it doesn't necessarily mean you'll go to protest and so this is where the contagion effect within collective identity plays a part and with the contagion effect like I said before If you see someone within a group doing something, you are more than likely to copy that. It's not a generalization of everyone, but these are just studies that have been shown over the years that once people are in a group setting, they are more than likely to copy the behaviors of other people within that group. These are just my first two points. My last point is going to look at a lack of trust in government and authority. And I'm sure we all can relate to this to a small degree as we go through our current situation. So after this small break, I'm going to look into that. I would honestly love to find someone who wholeheartedly trusts government in this day and age because trust in authority has dropped significantly over the years and especially during this period of the coronavirus, there was a YouGov poll back in May this year that showed a dramatic decline in trust. Less than half the population or half the people that took this poll, 48% said the government was relatively trustworthy in late May and this was down 67% just six weeks earlier. Then when it came to authority figures such as news organizations, the trust in them slipped from 57% to 46% in the same period. So you get from these polls, there's a clear sign that there's a lack of trust in government and authority institutions, like let's say the police, for example. So when you get people having a lack of trust in government, again, what does this do? It leads to people feeling these emotions of anger uh, at the government, and also fear that the government might not actually be working in their interests, and maybe working for their own interests. At the end of my last episode, I briefly mentioned that I got an alert that said Dominic Cummings had broke the lockdown rules, and I said, uh, that's not going to be good." And <laughs> as it turns out, it really, really wasn't good. What it shows is that the public still have a lack of trust in government because we can't trust them to follow their own rules. What this does is it breeds a sense of resentment, or even anger for the government and this was all done in the backdrop of everyone not knowing what was really going on with coronavirus and so what we have are these two emotions again playing a very massive part as to what can drive people to protest so you've got the anger and you've got the fear and again these are survival triggers and they're triggered by a lack of trust in government or authority institutions such as the police because if you're fearful that the police might actually kill you just when they're meant to be doing their job or protecting and serving the public this can lead you to then saying that you know what fuck the police (laughs) or at least something to that effect also what we're finding is that everyone has their own individual information channel if you want to think about it like that Every individual with a phone has their own separate apps, follows their own separate set of people and gets their own individual tailored news from whatever platform it may be. What this can do is leave people very vulnerable to misinformation. And so if you have a lot of misinformation being spread about the government or authority um, institutions, this can then play again, play a major role in people's emotions, such as how much anger they feel towards someone or how much fear they have about a particular issue. So that is also a major aspect in regards to why people don't actually trust the government or authority institutions, which then leads them to actually say, you know what, I'm going to go outside and protest, whatever it is. But then that started to make me wonder about if we're ever going to have factual news anymore or if news is just gonna be condemned to being agenda filled news in which people skew the results or people give you clips of something that doesn't have the full context of a conversation. But All in all, that's a conversation for another day. I just wanted to really focus on what can make people protest in today's episode. So what we have now is we have emotions that play a big part. We have a group setting that builds this collective identity. And then we have a deep sense of lack of government, a lack of trust in government and a lack of trust in authority institutions such as the police. And when you get all these things circling together, you do get a good sense of what can drive people to going out to protest which was what I really wanted to explore this episode. So whether you choose to actually march outside or not, there's actually a website I discovered, which was the Albert Einstein Institution, which gives you 198 ways you could possibly protest. And there is a range of things that you can find there. So if protesting really isn't your thing, as in going outside to march on the streets, then feel free to check out that website. And for any other information or some of the stats I gave during this episode, please look at the show notes and um, I've put in some links there so you guys can check it out so I just wanted to say I'm again I'm not making a judgment view on whether someone should participate in a protest or not I just really wanted to look at the base factors that lead someone to going out to a protest because it's just very easy to say that oh those people are angry and that's why they're outside but when you have a deeper look at it you can see all the different factors that play a part in this and so that's why I wanted to take a wonder with it today so I hope you guys enjoyed that if you are going out to any of the protest marches in future. Um, Good luck, stay safe and wear masks, please. (laughs) So that is it for this episode of the Mind Wanderers podcast. Like I said before, since I've missed a couple of episodes, you will start to see a couple of bonus episodes being dropped in midweeks and whatnot. So do look out for that. For any of you that want to contact me or reach me or check out some of the stuff I post, feel free to go to Instagram, which is mwpodcast on Instagram. And then on Twitter, it is at mind underscore wanderers. So you, please feel free to reach me on any of those platforms. I am also on email if someone wants to send me an email. Um, this one's a bit more convoluted, but it is mindwandererspod.com at gmail.com that is mine wondrous pod all one word at gmail.com um if you do have any feedback please feel free to get in contact with me on any of the socials i mentioned before but aside from that hope you guys have a nice week peace